It's Monday, June 10th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. New tariffs have been avoided. Mexico has agreed to take stronger measures to slow migration over the border, and President Trump has dropped the threat of tariffs for now. Joe Biden had a rough week reversing his long-held position on the Hyde Amendment, which some say was a purely political shift to get on board with an issue important for the Democratic Party. House Democrats are also scheduling a series of hearings this week on the special counsel's report. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us to break it all down. Next, the party drug MDMA is getting more attention as clinical studies are being done to see if psychiatrists can harness the therapeutic power of the drug to help patients with PTSD. Part of what helps the process is that MDMA can strengthen the bond between therapist and patient by enhancing feelings of trust, emotional openness, and empathy. It acts as a sort of psychological accelerant, making the changes in the brain that lay the groundwork for recovery. Liza Gross, contributor to The Verge, joins us for a look into how MDMA could possibly transform psychiatry. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Mexico will take unprecedented steps to increase enforcement to curb irregular migration, to include the deployment of its National Guard throughout Mexico, giving priority to its southern border. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. We have avoided the tariffs against Mexico. The president dropped his threat of tariffs on billions of dollars of Mexican imports after negotiators reached a deal. There is a couple things that happened. So Mexico is going to deploy their National Guard troops to their southern border with Guatemala. And then they're expanding a program for migrants seeking asylum. What do we know about this deal? President Trump has been plagued his entire administration with trying to figure out a way to handle what is a crisis at the southern border that has to deal with immigrants coming from Central American countries, countries, or what he says is a crisis at the border. This is uh, waves of immigrants that we saw arriving at the southern border before President Trump took office. And his administration, instead of welcoming these people in, have tried to figure out a way to turn them away. And it's been rather unsuccessful. This is his newest attempt, which is to get Mexico to stop these people from even entering their country so they cannot get anywhere near the U.S. border. The president has been in talks with Mexico for some time now to try to get them to do this. There was some reluctance on their part, in part because there are international rules that say when people fleeing war or other tumultuous situations like that, you have to let them come and claim asylum in your country. So Mexico now saying that in exchange for not having these tariffs on the goods that they send to the United States, they will do more to try to help stop those immigrants from ever getting to the U.S. border. Mexico's National Guard is deploying 6,000 troops there to that border. They're also expanding their migrant protection protocols, which is basically if migrants are claiming asylum in the United States, they have to wait in Mexico. So they're kind of expanding that program. That's right. I mean, there's still questions left to be figured out. What happens if someone gets to Mexico, declares asylum there, tells Mexico, like, you guys seem great, and then comes to the United States anyway? There may be no way to stop them, particularly if people are determined to get to the United States. But this is going to be a new, different attempt by President Trump's administration. The president was really angry at a New York Times article that said basically all these things that Mexico agreed to They had already agreed to previously months ago under Kirsten Nielsen. 
But I guess the benefit of these threats of the tariffs was just kind of sped things up a little bit. They were still kind of working on things. I think the initial plan was only to send a thousand National Guard troops to Mexico's southern border. So this just sped everything up and kind of just got it all in paper, at least. And the president's critics are saying that there was so much domestic backlash against these tariffs that he received a good deal of pushback and needed sort of an escape hatch. He needed a reason to get out of them. This was able to allow him to cancel those threats of tariffs, even if it was something that was already in the works. This was a, it was a, a sort of a, a, a ability for the president to say, never mind, without having to say he was wrong. <laughs> right, exactly. Let's move on to some 2020 Democratic action. The niceties seem to have ended. Candidates are kind of attacking each other on a range of issues. The person who got the most heat this past week was Joe Biden. After he had a reversal on the Hyde Amendment, he said, uh, we should be taking that away now. Tell us a little bit about his tumultuous week. You know, when you're Biden, when you're the leader, everyone's always going to have their sights trained on you. And that's what we saw this week, some swipes being taken at him. I was in Michigan and Indiana with Elizabeth Warren. And it's clear from some of the voters that I talked to that they were ready to see the Democrats start swiping at each other, that they wanted to see Warren be a little more aggressive in her handling of Joe Biden. One voter at one of her town halls pretty vehemently laid into Biden and said, what are you going to do about him? (laughs) She gave a little bit of a swipe at him in response. But the Hyde Amendment became the focus of a lot of that criticism. For those who aren't familiar with it, the Hyde Amendment says that the federal government can't spend any money on abortions. It's been a longstanding agreement between Democrats and Republicans, something that Biden had backed. And, And to be clear, Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar and Cory Booker have all voted for legislation that includes the Hyde Amendment before, but Biden a little more willing to support it in the past. And so a lot of criticism. And he then reversed course, saying that as president, he would not support the Hyde Amendment and that he thought it should no longer be included in spending bills passed by the federal government. So people were classifying it as a flip-flop. How much credit do candidates get for evolving positions? I mean, things change over time. A lot of people said the campaign and his aides got to Joe Biden to change it just because, you know, a lot of the Democrats are really opposed to what's going on across the country with all these laws regarding abortion right now. But people are allowed to change their their views on things. How does this fare with the voting public at large? Historically, voters are willing to allow people to change their views on issues that society as a whole has changed their views on. So a great example of that is gay rights. We've seen the U.S. electorate, the U.S. population go from sort of mixed views on gay rights to overwhelming support on gay rights. And voters don't really punish their politicians for going with that move. It is harder to do when it's not something that there's been a big swing in public opinion on, although there has been a shift on on some fronts on the abortion issue, particularly just within the Democratic Party. But they're they're less willing to be okay with it if it looks like they're just being politically expedient and not uh, legitimately having a changing of their mind. Finally, a look at what's going on for the rest of the week. House Democrats have scheduled a series of hearings about the special counsel Robert Mueller's report. They're trying to just keep it in the public, uh, in the public sphere, just uh, and keep pointing out things about obstruction of justice. What are we expecting to get out of these hearings? I think we're going to see the House Democrats trying to make the details of the Mueller report some really uh, bad 
uh, passages, some bad stories for the president come to life for voters, trying to find a way to make people really understand what was happening inside the White House. Uh, You know, I've read the Mueller report. Um, I'm an anomaly. Most people have not read it. Uh, They've seen coverage of it. But this is an attempt to sort of contextualize it and make people understand what's inside of it for those who haven't read it. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. What MDMA seems to do is melt the walls of these defenses that you've erected as a way to deal with your trauma, then allows you to be more comfortable with yourself thinking about it, and then also have more trust with the therapist so the therapist can help you really face that trauma. Joining us now is Liza Gross, independent journalist writing for The Verge. We're going to be talking about what has long been thought of as a party drug, MDMA, it's other form ecstasy rolled into that, but MDMA is really what we're focusing on here. We've been hearing for a long time now that it's actually playing a, quite a role in psychiatry and treating people with PTSD symptoms. It's helping. For a long time, it was just anecdotal stuff that we were hearing, but now there's clinical trials that are happening. There's preliminary research that's giving some backing data saying that it does actually help people with PTSD. Tell us a little bit about how this has been making a resurgence. MDMA, it's been around for a really long time, since early 1900s when Merckx developed it in the course of trying to develop a drug to stop bleeding. It was rediscovered by a chemist whose name is Alexander Shulgin, who's known for testing hundreds of psychedelic compounds and, and synthesizing them. And so he's rediscovered it. And when he tested it, he tested all of them on himself. And when he did test it, he found such amazing properties that it produced such a, an ongoing feeling of well-being is one way he described it, and just this feeling of euphoria. And he realized that some of his friends who were psychotherapists might find this of use. So in the late 70s, there was sort of an underground cadre of pioneering psychotherapists and psychiatrists who used it to treat people, and you, you would get these remarkable case studies. So just one person and one without a controlled study, but one person after another would was finding that they were able to recover from horrible traumatic events. There was one woman who had suffered a brutal rape and had a young family, you know, young kids and a family, and she just couldn't function. And her therapist, his name was Downing at that time in the late 70s, decided to try this out with her. This might have been the early 80s, but it was still legal. And she reported pretty quick response. I mean, so it's sort of this fast-acting, enduring response that patients have. And so there were a lot of case reports like that, but then it got banned in 1985. It was making its way through the party scene while all of this stuff was happening, and it prompted Congress to pass legislation to ban all this stuff. First, an emergency ban. It actually even made it onto Phil Donahue because there were these anecdotal reports that this stuff was really great. And then Donahue heard about it because there were all these busts, because people were having too much fun (laughs) in the club scenes. So then it was banned. So then the only kind of research that could be done on it was in animals to sort of prove toxicity. That's what was happening for a long time. And the purpose of this now, though, psychiatrists are looking at this. Obviously, they're trying to help people that have PTSD symptoms. Part of the problem with people that suffer from PTSD, it's hard to relive that trauma. So when you're doing a session with somebody, it's hard for them to open up 
It's hard for them to relive it. And that's where they're at. I think the Department of Veterans Affairs has said that the only way to treat PTSD is through psychotherapy. And that takes time. Psychiatrists want to use MDMA as giving them an edge, helping them supercharge that and open these empathetic pathways and let the person open up to the therapist a little bit more. Hopefully they can work through some of the issues. The idea is that to overcome a trauma that has disabled you, you sort of really can't go out and public because you have panic attacks. It's sort of this fight or flight response that makes sense at the moment that you're under attack, but then that never goes away. And so that's really disabling in your daily life when you just are basically going through normal daily events, like going shopping or whatever, you're not supposed to have that kind of response. And so the way to deal with that, the way to treat that is to make people relive that trauma. But that, as you can imagine, is really, really hard. And so the reason that that doesn't always work is because people just give up. They just can't take it. And so what MDMA seems to do is melt the walls of these defenses that you've erected as a way to deal with your trauma, but it, it's not really helping you deal with the trauma because you can't live a normal life. It seems to just break down those walls. And then what the consensus right now seems to be that it then allows you to be more comfortable with yourself thinking about it and then also have more trust with the therapist so the therapist can help you really face that trauma and look at it in a new way and recognize that it's no longer going to harm you. Let's talk about some of the health effects and some of the stigma of using MDMA. It does increase heart rate and blood pressure, but there's also been words that it make holes in your brain, which has not panned out actually. There was a paper that was published that said it put in holes in the brains of mice that they were giving it to, but that ended up being a huge blunder in that paper that was written. Back when everybody's using it in clubs and all that, the National Institute of drug abuse seemed to be very intent on proving that this was a really dangerous drug. They were putting it in the same class, which is Schedule 1, as heroin and cocaine and meth, amphetamine. They spent millions of dollars to giving to researchers who also seemed to be intent on proving that it was problematic. And so one of these researchers, his name was George Riccardi, had also a lot of grants testing methamphetamine. Whether intentionally or through some blunder, he gave his animals methamphetamine instead of MDMA and animals died. Not surprisingly, when you give them a huge amount of meth, they had really bad effects in the brain. So he published that paper with the understanding that it was MDMA that he had given the animals. And when that paper came out in a really high profile journal, by the way, people who are familiar with MDMA immediately recognized that it couldn't possibly have been MDMA because it just couldn't produce those effects. But the damage was pretty lasting because that gave the drug officials the ammunition they were looking for to ban the drug. I mean, <laughs> it's just so it's so comical how something like that could lead to something that could have been potentially studied for so long now. We could have had a better understanding of it. And that one paper puts a hold on that. So it took researchers almost 20 years to get these bans lifted to get federal permission to test MDMA as an experimental therapy. The hope right now is that MDMA could gain FDA approval for PTSD within two years, possibly. Tell us about some of the clinical trials that are going on, some of the other studies that have been performed on this. The PTSD trials are the most well-known, and they are actually going into what's called phase three clinical trials. So this is going to go from just proving that this is a feasible thing to do, which you do in phase two. But with phase three, you do it in hundreds of people, and this is just starting recruiting people in three countries, in Canada, the U.S., and in Israel at 15 sites, and this will be hundreds of people. And so so if that goes well, then yes, it could be approved by 2021. And it's also been used in also small studies for people 
with life-threatening illnesses. So basically, as you can imagine, it's really hard to be confronted with your own death, and it can be very traumatic for families. And this has really shown that it really reduces anxiety in these intense psychotherapy sessions using this drug. And it's also been used, another study used it for autistic adults, so adults who have autism but suffer from crippling social anxiety. It's helped them figure out how to be in social situations. To qualify for the trial, you have to have had PTSD and tried multiple other therapies that didn't work. So it's not just anybody can say, hey, I want to try this. I have PTSD. I want to try this out. But that second part that you just mentioned, how they were trying it out with autistic adults for social interactions. That's an interesting point, too, because as we were talking about how the drug does help break down some of these barriers. You know, everybody anecdotally knows, oh, it makes you kind of love everybody. That was one of the other things that they were looking to MDMA for because it helps break down that social awkwardness maybe. And they were looking for other possibilities in that realm. What's so amazing and why researchers are actually trying to use MDMA as a probe in the brain to figure out how normal social behaviors are mediated by the brain. It's the only one of these so-called psychedelic drugs that produces enhanced empathy and enhanced goodwills towards self and others. Scientists call these pro-social effects. This is really a remarkable thing. And so why they're hoping that they can figure out how that's happening in the brain is so they can maybe find other drugs, which is going to be a big challenge. I think many people realize (laughs) that act in a similar way so that you don't have any of the risks that MDMA has. Even though they're minimal, there are still risks. So attitudes about MDMA have been changing. What are people in the medical field and psychiatric field How are they reacting to its resurgence? interesting because I was actually at the psychedelic science meeting in Oakland in 2017 and Tom Insull, who used to head the National Institutes of Mental Health, was very excited about this research. And you can't get more mainstream medicine and science than that. But he's really supports this idea of trying to really figure out how the brain works so that you can design drugs that have a more, they call them rational drug design, so that you can have more targeted drugs that hopefully will be more effective. Because most of the psychiatric drugs we have today just basically hit all the receptors in your brain, which is why they have so many terrible side effects. And so this is starting to actually, it seems like more people are embracing it than this certainly than had even 10 years ago, because they're seeing the data from the trials that it's being effective, even though it's in small groups of people, but it's being effective and it's relatively safe. It's an interesting discussion because one of the quotes in your article, this is where psychiatry meets anesthesia. It's this fast acting potent thing that can help kick off the process that would help people with PTSD symptoms. And there's a lot of stuff that needs to be looked into. You know, if they're taking other medications, you know, you might have to wean them off of that to give them this stuff. So it's interesting how this discussion is unfolding. And as we said, the this clinical trials that are happening right now, phase three, it's pretty far along in that process. I talked to so many people, so many psychiatrists and people who've used MDMA in small trials are really just hopeful that things go slowly enough. So it doesn't, ha- the same thing that happened before where in the 70s, the psychiatrists were just, they saw remarkable results and they just hadn't seen anything like that again. And then that amazing magic drug was taken away from them. And that That's the one concern that some of the psychiatrists I spoke with voiced, that we just need to go slow. We need to make sure that it's used in the proper setting with the properly trained people. And they're very excited about its potential to help people who have not been helped by anything else. Liza Gross, independent journalist writing for The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.